Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm your host, Pamela Hensley, and in season two, I travel to Berlin. Learn what it's like growing up in a divided city, fleeing the country, living here as a Jewish expat. Join me as I speak to winners and contenders of the German Book Prize, the Thomas Mann Prize, the Dublin Literary Award, and the International Booker. Season two of How I Wrote This begins on April 23rd. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Toronto, 1979. David Cronenberg was holed up in the chilly upstairs of his new two-story home, located at 184 Cottingham Street a house he was recently able to purchase with the financial windfall from his latest film, Rabid. Its lath and plaster walls did nothing to keep out the cold weather. David was required to wear a pair of sheepskin gloves with the fingers cut off while writing his latest script. Sometime shortly before, Victor Selnicki, Dave Shouten, and producer Pierre David approached him to write a film for their new production company, Vision 4. David had pitched them an idea he had had for 10 years about battling telepaths. He called it The Sensitives. Pierre David liked the idea and engaged the director to write the script. But as any writer knows, the script you're supposed to write is not always the one that wants to come out. For David, the recent events of his personal life had burned a pit in his stomach. His marriage to Margaret had broken up, the couple had drifted apart, as Margaret moved towards a life of spiritualism. David and his ex were embroiled in a bitter custody battle for Cassandra, their only daughter. One day, David received a call from Margaret. I wanted to tell you. She started. I'll be going to California. There's a group, an an ashram. Okay. I'm going to be joining the community there. Cassandra and I leave tomorrow. I see. Well... I wish you good luck. David immediately went to his daughter's school and picked her up. He then obtained a court order preventing Margaret from taking her out of the country. So, Margaret went on her own. The pain of the divorce, the pain of the custody battle bubbled up in David's gut and came out through his fingertips and took form as a script that, to David, explored the horrors of divorce. The story of a father trying to protect his daughter from the cult that took her mother. But of course, it would come out with a very Cronenbergian twist. Are you ready for me, Frank? I seem to be a very special person now. I'm in the middle of a strange adventure. I want to go with you wherever you go. Do you? Yes. Then look! The Brood. You can run. You can hide and hope they won't find you. But you won't escape. Once unleashed, The Brood will destroy anyone who gets in their way. 
David Cronenberg's ultimate experience in inner terror. Starring Oliver Reed and Samantha Egar. The Brood. They're waiting for you. about media i'm ryan barnett and this is once upon a time in hollywood north the podcast in which we dive into the history behind your favorite CanCon. this is the fourth episode in our series on filmmaker david cronenberg in our last episode david followed up on the success of his feature debut with the equally audacious sophomore effort for which he cast none other than adult film actress marilyn chambers as his leading lady the back-to-back successes of shivers and rabid made the 34-year-old filmmaker the most bankable director working in Canada. This is episode 4, Breaking Through. Oliver Reed, star of The Devils and The Three Musketeers, was three sheets to the wind. And I was on with Shelley Winters, who never keeps her mouth shut at all. Famous actor and infamous drinker, brawler, and all around hellion, was playing his most famous role that of an off screen barfly. While pounding pints, he regaled the Canadian pub crowd with stories from his younger days. The time that a couple of guys, not too happy with Reed's dry wit and smart mouth, attacked him in the toilets of the Crazy Elephant nightclub. An attack that resulted in Reed needing 63 stitches in his face. Or the time he drank 100 pints of beer in a single day and lived to tell the tale. But tonight was just a bit of good fun. Reed had just arrived in Montreal to shoot his part in the new David Cronenberg picture, The Brood. He was there to lend the horror film a touch of British prestige. He was one of two non-Canadian actors permitted to star in the film under the new tax shelter stipulations. For Reed, it was an occasion to celebrate. He had been paid up front, a lesson he had learned the hard way in his younger years. With his salary burning a hole in his pocket, he was only too happy to hit the pub. Chances were he wouldn't have to pay for his own drinks anyway. When you're famous for your cast iron kidneys and liver, people tended to line up to buy you drinks. That was Reed's experience anyway. The night was getting on when a bit of nonsense struck the English actor. He announced to the bar that could they raise enough cash, he would sprint from this bar to the next, completely in the buff, braving the cold Montreal weather. The pub patrons were enthusiastically behind this plan. A collection hat was passed around, and when it returned full, Reed dutifully stripped, cash in hand, and exited the pub, streaking up Crescent Avenue. He got about halfway to his destination when... (coughs) Reed's one phone call went to Pierre David, the producer of The Brood. After all, if the Canadian crew wanted to shoot the next day as planned, somebody had to post bail. The nuisance arrest aside, 
Shooting for the Brood was rather uneventful. David Cronenberg was working with a $1.5 million budget, a hell of a leap from his first two features. It was a real war chest that could solve many problems for the filmmaker, even if court bonds had to be hidden in the budget through clever accounting. Joining Reed as the other non-Canadian actor in the film was Samantha Eggart, the Oscar-nominated lead of The Collector and Dr. Doolittle. Eggar signed on to play the film's avatar for Cronenberg's own ex-wife. I think I really liked the part. I mean, I, I, I think the part was, uh, it was almost Shakespearean. She was scheduled to shoot her part as Nola, the disturbed patient of Oliver Reed's Dr. Reglin and the Soma Free Institute of Psychoplasmics in just four days. I was working on Fantasy Island, getting married to Ricardo Montalban, who, being an actor of his time, when he kissed you, he held the back of your neck and he bent you over and kissed you and you sort of felt that you were in the 30s. Flown to Canada at 28 degrees into the brood. I shot Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I flew home to Los Angeles on Friday. So the entirety of the brood was shot in four days. For me, my part. This day on set was to be Edgar's last. It was the scene in which her ex-husband, played by Art Hindle, would strangle Nola to death in an attempt to save their daughter from the clutches of her brood, a group of malformed offspring which were played by preteen gymnasts in snowsuits and heavy makeup. David watched on as his actors played out the scene he had written in his attic office all those months ago. Ready? Action! He watched as Hindle wrapped his hands around Edgar's throat and played at choking the life out of her. He watched Edgar struggle, fight back, and eventually relent and succumb. He watched his dark fantasy, the thing he would never do but could only flirt with through his art. He found catharsis through his work. The brood was the acting out of his darkest emotions and impulses during one of the darkest times in his life. And when he called, Cut! A weight was lifted. The pain from his divorce and subsequent custody battle wasn't erased, but he had worked through it and found himself on the other side. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Easy, easy. Must have just seen Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> yes, it's Spot the Wonder Dog. That means it's time for Dog of the Week, where Roger and I pick the week's worst movies. Right you are, Gene. And my dog this week is 90 minutes of bewildering boredom, followed by 15 minutes of nauseating child <laughs> monsters. It's called The Brood. Oliver Reed stars as a weird scientist who runs something called the Institute for Psychoplasmics. <laughs> His patients create these bodies outside of themselves and control them through sheer mind power, and his sickest patient, Samantha Eggar, has started giving birth to inhuman, 
little clones. They're disgusting little demons. Run around in snowsuits and hammer first grade teachers to death. Ugh. Well, she's given birth to about a dozen of these creatures before <laughs> her husband catches on. He doesn't catch on real quick. <laughs> and then there's a bloody and a reprehensible conclusion. Why do so many horror movies take kids and make them into monsters? Maybe it's because they're too small to fight back. A good point. The Brood may have been the dog of the week for many critics, but for Cronenberg, it marked a maturation in his aesthetics as a filmmaker. Where Shivers and Rabbit had been exercises in B-movie making, The Brood was a more serious-minded work. Cronenberg would later call it his version of Kramer vs. Kramer, name-checking the Oscar-winning film which featured Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep as a couple embroiled in an equally bitter divorce and custody battle. Cronenberg considered The Brood a much more truthful depiction of divorce than Kramer. Despite the film's ambitions, New World Pictures marketed it as another horror schlockfest south of the border, relegating it to double features and drive-ins. The Brood wasn't the crossover hit that David and his producers were hoping for. Nevertheless, it did go on to gross $5 million, keeping David at the top of the heap for bankable directors working in Canada. Despite this, David didn't have the luxury of resting on his laurels. It was the fall of 1979. The fiscal year was closing. It was time to take out the butterfly nets and catch some film funding from doctors and dentists looking to mitigate their tax bills come April. Since making The Brood, Vision 4 had folded. Victor Solnicki and Pierre David regrouped with producer Claude Heroux to form Film Plan International. The trio once again turned to Cronenberg for a new idea. Under the gun, the filmmaker turned his attention back to his half-written script for The Sensitives. With The Brood out of his system... He was ready to tackle the project in earnest, only one problem. He had just two weeks to prep before they had to start shooting. CKCO-TV, the Marx Brothers set out to find talented opera performers in Milan, Italy, and the laughs abound. It's a night at the opera. Hilarious comedy on CKCO-TV's Tuesday Late Day. Welcome. Scanners, the film that was born of Cronenberg's idea for The Sensitives, would be his first hard science fiction film. It featured many of his earlier hallmarks, like making thoughts physical, misguided scientists, and paraphysical abilities brought out through experimental medications. But it moved away from horror genre tropes, in favor of more action and explosions. Cronenberg's story about warring telepaths also provided him with his healthiest production budget to date, at $4 million. But the one thing that $4 million couldn't buy him was a completed script. In the mad rush to get the film to camera before the December 31st deadline, David hadn't had time to finish his screenplay for his sci-fi thriller. So, before each 14-hour shoot day, he'd wake up at 5 a.m. and for two hours, write the scenes for the day ahead. It was no way to make a picture. But making movies in Canada continues to be a chasing the funding window proposition. This way of working also didn't endear David to his actors. Once again, he found himself working with another famous drinker from across the pond, Patrick McGowan. McGowan, who was at one time considered for the role of James Bond, 
had made a name for himself as another famous spy, John Drake, otherwise known as Danger Man. Every government has its Secret Service branch. America at CIA, France, Deuxième Bureau, England, MI5. My messy job, well, that's when they usually call on me or someone like me. Oh, yes, my name is Drake, John Drake. small footnote for listeners who fall within my particular Venn diagram of interests, Danger Man, which aired on British television from 1960 to 1962, and again between 1964 and 1968, was produced by Lord Lou Grade, the man responsible for bankrolling. The Muppet Show with our very special guest stars, Shields and Yarnell! McGowan also starred in and created the cult classic series, The Prisoner. But by 1979, he was in his 50s. A graying star, still with a full head of hair and magnificent silver beard, his leading man days were behind him. For David, working with Patrick McGowan, was as it was with Oliver Reed and Samantha Eggart. They were these British actors appearing in a tax shelter quickie for an easy payday. But they were so preternaturally good at what they did that they just popped on screen, despite shooting their roles in four days, or between jail stints, or for McGowan, while in the grips of alcoholism. No, David. McGowan started one day on set. I don't quite know what I would do if I couldn't drink. David froze. His actor launched into this apropos of nothing. David wasn't prepared to talk about complex feelings related to addiction. If I didn't drink, I'd think I would probably kill someone. David turned and looked into the actor's eyes, and he knew then that he meant what he said. For himself, David believed deeply in exercising self-control. He had experimented with drugs in the 1960s, pot, LSD. However, as an artist, his clarity of mind was paramount. Anything that compromised that clarity compromised the quality of his work. And up to that point, his relationship hadn't been good with Patrick McGowan. The actor bristled at receiving new pages each day. He hated the uncertainty that came with tax shelter filmmaking. And with this in mind, David responded, Well, Patrick, keep drinking then. Jennifer O'Neill, McGowan's co-star, was upset for an entirely different reason than the pickled Brit. Before Scanners, O'Neill had been a covergirl model, but more importantly, she starred in the Oscar-winning film Summer of 42. Prior to joining Scanners, she was set to star in Disney's answer to Star Wars, The Black Hole, but in the lead-up to that film, She was told she'd have to cut her hair short in order to help sell the zero-gravity environment depicted in the film. Reportedly, O'Neill drank to get through her de-locking, and on her way home, got into a car accident that took her out of contention for the role. The producers of Scanners saw an opportunity and sent O'Neill a copy of their script with all the violence removed. They had it on good authority that she would turn it down otherwise. So, when the actor was on set, She was surprised by the violence engineered for the camera, the centerpiece of which was a scene in which the film's antagonist, played by Michael Ironside, explodes the head of another telepath, played by Seeing Things star Louis Del Grande. Gary Zeller, Stefan Dupuy, and Chris Wallace were tasked with blowing up the actor's head. Sounds easy enough, perhaps. But they had to find a way to do it without the flash or smoke that typically follows a squib or other sort of pyrotechnics traditionally used to blow stuff up good. After all, 
This was a decapitation caused by the power of thought. At first, they tried exploding plaster and wax heads using pneumatic air pressure, but the results were less than convincing. Chris Wallace, who just one year later would melt Nazi faces for Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark, would eventually make a gelatin positive of Del Grande's head. The results were so lifelike that the special effects team decided to surprise their director by leaving the head in his hotel room for him to discover, much to Cronenberg's surprise and then eventual delight. For shooting, the special effects team filled the head with red corn syrup, food waste, literally hamburgers that were left on their workbenches as hastily discarded fast food lunches, and whatever else was hanging around the special effects shop that would pass as viscera. The night that they were scheduled to shoot the scene, Chris Wallace showed up at the Concordia University Lecture Hall, their location for that evening. He looked around, clocked the carpet, the upholstered seats, the velvet stage curtains. It was at that point that he heard the movie's location manager's voice in his head. Do not make a mess. Knowing that there was no clean way to blow up a head on set, Wallace suggested that they pivot the plan for their money shot and shoot somewhere else. So the crew eventually pulled up stakes and headed for Old Port, Montreal's waterfront, to shoot the scene outdoors. As planned, actor Michael Ironside was to be seated next to Louis Del Grande's effigy. But when it came time to film the shot, Ironside took note of the plexiglass box that was being used to protect the camera when he considered its proximity to the planned explosion and compared it to that of his own. He pulled Cronenberg aside. What's to say that I'm not going to catch some shrapnel from this thing? How do you mean? How can you be certain I won't get hurt doing this shot? David turned the question over to his producer. No one had a satisfactory answer. So, Michael Ironside said he'd do the scene in a two-shot, sitting next to the exploding effigy, but he'd need $25,000 to do it, and an additional insurance policy. The producer did a quick back-of-the-napkin calculation, then turned to his director and said, Can we do the shot in a single? Ironside was right to be concerned. The first few times the special effects crew tried to explode the head, it didn't work as expected, much to the frustration of the department head, Gary Zeller. Okay, fuck this. I'm done screwing around. In the end, the effect was accomplished when Gary grabbed a shotgun, laid on the floor behind the prop, and blasted the gelatin head with a round of kosher salt, which tore through it like a Kleenex in flu season. In the months that followed picture wrap on the film, David began editing a cut of scanners. When it came time to assembling the film's climax, despite the best efforts and intentions during the Montreal shoot, Cronenberg and his editor Ronald Sanders found the rushes were anticlimactic. The pacing was off, and the makeup effects were less than effective. It would require a reshoot before the film was ready for release. But a reshoot would require reinforcements. Dick Smith was cleaning his New York City workshop when a call came in from Canada. Hello? Dick, it's Gary Seller. Gary, how are you guys doing up there? Not great, Dick. We're in a bit of a tight spot, in fact, on the horror picture we're trying to wrap. Soliciting Dick Smith for assistance in makeup effects was akin to asking Margaret Atwood for help with her book report. The man was already a legend for his work aging up Marlon Brando to play Don Corleone in The Godfather, and 30-year-old Dustin Hoffman 
to pass as a 110-year-old for Little Big Man. Smith pioneered many makeup techniques, rendering a demon-possessed Linda Blair in The Exorcist and creating the effects for the bloody climax of Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. So if there was a person who could help fix Cronenberg's ending, it was Dick Smith. As David continued to fix scenes through ADR, or additional dialogue recording, Smith and the special effects boys worked out an improved climax. Scanners was to end in an all-out telepathic warfare between Stephen Lack, the film's hero, and Michael Ironside's villain. But how to depict the destructive power of the mind? Well, Dick Smith set about creating a series of practical effects that showed a build-up and transfer of pressure between the film's two sensitives. Dick Smith's protege Rick Baker explains the techniques employed. Dick did these really interesting effects um, where these veins would appear on, on the scanner's face when they, when they did it the scanner's way. But what Dick would do would be actually make a plaster mold off of the part of the person's face, and in that mold, after it's released, paint in layers of this elvisite, this plastic, which would you paint in a layer and it would dry, and you put a little more in it, it would dry. And then he actually had thin pieces of rubber called dental dam that he had put release agent on, and it was cut out in the shape of these veins that he wanted, and kind of put that down on the elvisite and then paint another layer over it and another layer. And, and what that actually did was then create a a space in these sandwiched in between this uh, elvisite, which he could pump air into or pump blood into, which is what he did in the case of, of scanners. He had to punch a little hole in the top to get the air out. So then once the blood reached that point, it would squirt out. And I guess Cronenberg being the, the strange twisted man that he is like that. <laughs> viewers of this program should know by now that I have a very low tolerance for gory movies, but I must admit that I enjoyed Scanners, even though it contains a scene where a human head explodes. This movie turns out to be a very complicated little thriller that actually convinces us that Scanners could exist. In other words, it's not just a cheap shocker where all we notice are the special effects. Instead, in Scanners, we buy the premise and we follow the story. I think it's a good little thriller. I know that the movie was directed by somebody that horror film fans think is a real young genius, David Cronenberg, mm -hmm. who also directed They Came From Within and The Brood. I think mm -hmm. we've seen both of those films. I don't know. I admired his craft in this film. I th thought he did a good job of directing mm -hmm. it, but I never got involved in the people. I never thought of it as their story. Mm -hmm. So I was just watching actors going through this business, and then you get the, they're thinking real hard at each mm -hmm. other, and heads are exploding, and I'm thinking, oddly enough, I can admire the technique, but I don't care. Mm -hmm. It opened to 2.5 million in its first weekend and went on to gross 14 million against its $4 million budget. Cronenberg continued his streak as the most profitable Canadian filmmaker. So happy was Pierre David, the film's producer, that he soon approached his golden goose with a pitch. Listen to this, he said. Just listen and tell me what you think. David Cronenberg's Frankenstein. Sounds good to me, David said. What about poor Mary Shelley? Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is written and produced by me, Ryan Barnett, and presented by Knockabout Media. It's co-produced by Sonia Jamidi with additional voices by Matt Barnett and Sonia Jamidi. This was episode four, Breaking Through. If you like our podcast, rate, review, and tell a friend. In researching this show, I relied heavily on two books, Cronenberg on Cronenberg, edited by Chris Rodley, and David Cronenberg, Interviews with Serge Grunberg, as well as print and online interviews and DVD special features. Special archival audio comes courtesy of Retro Ontario. You can find more Canadian media ephemera on their YouTube channel and Instagram. If you want anything more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at It's Ryan Barnett. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Mom with the new flesh. Enough about the media original.